Let me talk about lost dogs and misplaced rings for a moment, okay? Oh, probably about 1999 or 2000, somewhere in there, about 22, 23 years ago, one morning, I took the trash out or whatever, and I left the door open to our garden, our back garden. Now, most of you know that we've got, we've had German shepherds most of our adult life, most of our married life. This was German shepherd number three. Her name was Aubra. She was about, oh, probably 12 years old. And you know what happened. I didn't shut the gate. And, yeah, I went back in, started cooking breakfast or whatever, looked around for Aubra, and she wasn't there. She was in the backyard, but she wasn't in the backyard. Now, our German shepherds are not trained. We've never trained them to stay in the yard. We just locked the gate. So I didn't know what to do. I was in my sock feet, my pajamas. I jumped in the car and madly started driving around the neighborhood, really having no hope of finding Aubra, not knowing where she, because she'd been gone for about 20 minutes or so. And do y'all, do y'all ever do you remember, remember a guy by the name of Rick Thompson, a Rick Johnson, who used to teach Old Testament for Southwestern Seminary? Rick lived about a half mile from us. And I went back and forth, up and down all the streets and cul-de-sacs. Esther lives over there, went down her street, no Aubrey here, no Aubrey there. And I was making my last turn and on my way home, and I looked over near Rick's house, and there she was, just as happy as she could be, fat, dumb, and happy, just rooting around in the garden there, you know. So I can remember the feel in my sock feet walking across that dew-covered grass to recover her. How do you think I felt? I felt kind of stupid, really. <laughs> but what, what emotion did I experience? Joy. Joy. She who was lost was then found. Most of you know the McKinney story, but if you don't, it's even more bizarre than that. Uh, Jim and Michelle McKinney have a Rhodesian Ridgeback, who's about 10 years old now, Rosie. And when Rosie was probably about three years old, three or four, one of the workers that came to work in their yard left the gate open. The same thing happened. And Rosie was gone. I mean, gone. Nowhere to be found, nowhere to be, nowhere to be seen. Those of you that know the McKinney's know what happened. Fifteen months later, Rosie was returned to them through a vet that had scanned the chip in the back of the neck. Don't have any idea where Rosie had been, except she'd probably been with some little girls because her toenails were painted red and pink. <laughs> How do you think that Jim and Michelle felt after 15 months? She who was, well, it depends on, <laughs> it depends on which one you talk to, I guess. But no, they love Rosie and she's still with them, you know. She who was lost was now found. Beverly and I had been married about, uh, oh, a little more than a year. I was assigned in Turkey and she was back in the States. It was unaccompanied, an unaccompanied tour, but I had sent for her and she was coming in July. This was the beginning of June. Now, the geography around Istanbul is this. In the south are the Dardanelles, and it opens up into a rather wide sea, next to which is Nicaea on the east coast. 
And then it narrows again into the Bosphorus and empties into the Black Sea. And it was on a hot June day that uh, I and my staff that were at the uh, military installation went out for a day at the sea. Well, I weighed a few pounds less then, and my ring did not fit as tightly around my finger as it does now. And uh, I decided not to put it in my shoe on the beach because I was afraid it'd get knocked over and be lost in the sand. So we were in about chest high water, and I looked down, and guess what? My ring had slipped off my finger and four feet of water in the Sea of Marmara. Lost. No hope of recovering. No hope of finding. You can imagine the panic I felt. Married just a little longer than a year. My bride's coming to join me, and I couldn't take care of the ring for more than a year. (laughs) I said, stop. Everybody stop right where they are. Stop stirring up the sand. Look down and see if you can find my ring. There's no hope of finding the ring at all whatsoever. We looked for about 15 minutes, and then all of a sudden, one of our uh, specialists there in the section, Kopinski, said, Sir, is this it? And I wanted to go over him. Uh, I shouldn't say this in the pulpit. I wanted to go over there and pop him in the jaw. Because you know, I, I figured he was yanking my chain, you know, joking with me. And he held up my ring. He had found it in four feet of seawater off the coast of Istanbul. How do you think I felt? Maybe not so much joy as relief, you know. Last story. You know, how do you feel when you lose something like that? Well, you, you're sad, if, whether it's a possession or an, a pet or friendship or whatever it is, you feel sad. But don't you, don't you feel like you kind of have a piece of you missing? You know? Uh, Beverly had a ring uh, that we bought when we were in Turkey, and we'd been married about 35, 40 years. We're living in the house that we're living in now, and she went to find it one day, and she could not find it. And guess what? We have never found it. And to this day, sometimes I still look under the dresser and I look behind. It's almost like something is missing. A piece of you is missing, you know, when, when you lose something like that. Well, that's the way God feels about his children, I think, that there's a piece missing. And when we, when we lose something like that, we search for it diligently. We never give up. And it bothers us when we don't find it. We experience a profound sense of loss. It's like putting together the jigsaw puzzle. And you get down to the very last piece, and it's usually near the center, and it's what? It's missing, you know. And when we find it, we're filled with ecstatic joy and a sense of completion. That which was lost is now found. You know, the scarlet thread about this is basically about God's shepherding of lostness. God's searching for his lost sheep. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 100 describes us corporately as God's flock. Know that the Lord, he himself is God, and it is he who has what? He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the what? The sheep of his pasture. Individually, we express this in one of our favorite psalms, if not one of our favorite passages. The Lord is our shepherd. No, the Lord is what? My shepherd. 
personally, I shall not want. You see, God himself calls his people in Ezekiel, the 34th chapter. He, he describes his people Israel as the sheep of his pasture. And today, the church, we are his sheep. Jacob's testimony, you know, when he goes to bless the sons in Genesis, the 48th chapter, this is how he describes himself as he does the blessing. When he blessed Joseph, when he comes near the end, he blessed Joseph and he said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham, my father Isaac, walked, the one that walked with him, the God who has been my, what, shepherd all my life to this very day. The patriarchs saw God as their shepherd, and all of the patriarchs were what? They were shepherds. Abraham was not just a wandering Aramean, he was also a shepherd. Isaac and Jacob, they were all shepherds. When they settle in Egypt, this is very obvious when you look at the, near the end of Genesis in chapter 46, it said that they settled in the land of what? Uh, the land of Goshen, and there the Egyptians despised them. The, 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 the Egyptians looked down on them. They looked at them as being loathsome. Why? Because they were shepherds. They were from the boondocks. They were the hicks, the rural hicks that tended livestock keepers of livestock. They were shepherds. It was a shepherding nation of sheep. And they were in hopeless captivity in Egypt in that capacity. How long were they in captivity in Egypt? Well, Genesis 15, uh, God tells Abram at that time, eventually Abraham, that he is, his descendants are going to live in captivity and bondage for 400 years. Well, that's a round number because in Exodus, the 12th chapter, these shepherding people are under the domination of the ruling Egyptians, we are told, 430 years. Actually, when you do the math, and we did this when we preached through the Bible and looked at Exodus, you might remember, it's difficult reconciling those dates. Probably what it means is 430 years from Abram's first sojourn into Egypt. Because the passage in Genesis 15 says they're going to be there about 400 years to the fourth generation. Those are pretty long generations. And so what we think it means is that, in fact, it was 400 or 430 years from the time that Abram first went into Egypt and then later Jacob comes. And it was about 210 years when you, do, when you calculate the actual years from the time that Jacob entered and when we think Moses left. Now, the point is this. Four generations there in captivity. That is a long time. Go back 210 years from, from now, back in time. That takes us back to about the War of 1812, the first war after the Revolution. 210 years, folks, is a time, is time enough to lose what? It's time to lose hope. Things seem to be hopeless, but God promised that he would deliver his people because he is the great shepherd that loves his sheep. Exodus, the third chapter, tells us that he looked down and he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. You see, I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I'm aware of their sufferings. These are his sheep. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this 
place to a good and spacious land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And what, whom did he use to do that? Whom did he use to deliver this nation of sheep herders? He used a sheep herder. He used Moses who had fled into the wilderness at the age of 40 and he lived on the backside, not just in the wilderness, the backside of the wilderness for 40 years, tending not his own flock, but the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. He knew the desert like the back of his hand. God was preparing this shepherd to do what? We are told in Isaiah, and he looks back, that they were delivered out of the sea, God says, through shepherds of his flock. Moses was one of those who was another. Who then took Moses' place? Joshua. So you see in the transition from the leadership of Moses to Joshua, shepherding language is used of those leaders. They, God says that we will do this. You're going to transfer leadership to one who will lead them and bring them in. Bring them into the fold. Bring them into safety so that the congregation of the Lord will be like sheep who have a shepherd. They will not be like sheep who are without a shepherd. So you see this shepherding motif and the scarlet thread runs all the way back to God himself as the great shepherd through the patriarchs, through the delivery, and then eventually when they demanded a king and Saul was not up to the task, God gave them what kind of king? A shepherd king. David, Psalm 78. He also chose David his servant to, and took him from the sheepfolds, took him out of the sheepfolds of his father and from the care of ewes and suckling lambs. And he brought him to do what? To shepherd Jacob, to shepherd the nation of Israel, his people, and Israel as his inheritance. And we know what happened after that. These were supposed to be faithful shepherds, but they weren't. Corporately, they went astray, and individually they went astray. Tracing the scarlet thread then down through the kings, corporately we know that many of the kings, all the kings in Israel, the northern ten tribes, and about 40% of the kings in Judah were what? They were false shepherds. They were corrupt. Isaiah says they were without understanding, and they turned their own way, and they filled their positions for their own gain, unjust gain. Jeremiah describes it as being destructive shepherds. They scattered the flock. Zechariah says that these leaders fattened themselves. They didn't clothe the sheep. They didn't take care of them. They didn't heal the flock. They didn't keep the flock safe. And Zechariah puts it this way. My flock wandered through all the mountains and, and on every high hill. Now, that's saying something more than just being stranded out in the open because you know what the high hills were dedicated to. The high hills were where the altars were to Ashtoreth and to Baal. So they also led them into idolatry. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one, and here's the point, there was no one to do what? To search or seek for them. There isn't a shepherd that searches and seeks the lost. That was from a corporate standpoint, but individually we know that, as today, we are all sheep. We're all sheep who have done what? Gone astray. 
The psalmist puts it this way at the end of 119, that great passage about the Bible. It closes with this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Then therefore seek your servant, appealing to God. All of us, Isaiah says, are like sheep who have gone astray. Each has turned his own way. And the solution then, and that very same passage in the next verse is, who is it that is going to deliver the sheep that have gone astray? Who is going to seek them? Well, you might say a shepherd, but in this case, it's the lamb. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, and he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before it shears, he didn't even open his mouth. So the one that is going to deliver is going to be both the lamb and the shepherd. And God promised rescue. Tracing the scarlet thread, then we see that God said, I'm going to take care of this myself. The human king shepherds and the human priest shepherds are not doing their job. And he says in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, behold, the Lord will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. And in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. The Lord himself will restore the flock. Ezekiel continues after he's condemned the bad shepherds, and he says, this is what the Lord God says, behold, I myself will search. I myself will be the one who seeks for the sheep. I will seek them out. And the shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. You see, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them with judgment. We know where this is headed. Uh, Ezekiel goes on then, and he describes what form this deliverance will take. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So who is this? Of course, David is the coming Christ. Micah prophesies that this is going to happen. There is going to be a ruler, Micah tells us, that comes out of Bethlehem, which is the least of all the villages and towns, and is going forth, coming in and going out, will be from the days of eternity. He's going to be that ruler. And two verses later, it's not just a kingly ruler, but that kingly ruler is described in shepherd terms. And he will arise and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. So we know who this is. He is the Jesus the Christ because of the visitation of the Magi. When Herod then inquires of the scribes and the priests where this king is to be born, the citation comes from Micah in Matthew 2. And it says that out of Bethlehem of Judah, which is the least of all of these places in Judah, there will come a ruler who will do what? Will shepherd the people of Israel. So Jesus fulfills these prophecies, doesn't he? By his own testimony in John, the 10th chapter, he says, I am the good what? I'm the good shepherd. 
And the good shepherd does what? He doesn't rob. He doesn't abuse the sheep. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. And he also gathers his sheep. And he closes that passage about the shepherd before he then talks about his ability to lay down his life and raise it up again because the Father's given him that power to lay it down and raise it up. Before he does that, he closes his passage about the shepherd and he says this, I am the good shepherd because the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And you know what? I have other sheep. And they're not in this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And he demonstrates this. As he goes through Galilee, and I've made reference to this two or three times in the past week, tirelessly teaching in their synagogues and healing and exercising demons, healing every kind of sickness, before he sends out the twelve to do the same thing, go heal, go heal the leper, raise the dead, He looks at the people out there and they are distressed. He looks out at the people and they're discomfited and he has compassion for them. Why? Because they look like what? Sheep without a shepherd. When he retreats to a lonely place to get some rest with his disciples and the crowds follow him across the sea, they pursue him into the remote place. He's exhausted. He's tired. But he looks out upon the people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. So he not only teaches them and heals them, but he feeds them, the feeding of the 5,000. After the feed, the reason for the feeding of the 4,000 is the same. He looks at them and he says, we've got to feed them because you know what? I can't let them go home this way. Many of them have traveled a long distance. And if I let them go away without feeding them, I have compassion on them. They will faint on the way home, and he feeds them. So he identifies himself not only in in, in describing himself as the good shepherd, but exhibiting compassion for him. And we come to this passage in Luke. In Luke, the 15th chapter, it's after the transfiguration. It's after the completion of his Galilean ministry. In Luke 9, 51, we know what he did. He turned his face like flint and then headed toward Jerusalem because the day of his ascension was drawing nigh. He was getting ready to go home. So he heads to Jerusalem, and then for about the next 13 chapters in the book of Luke, we have many, many teachings. Jesus continues. It's actually about another 11 chapters. He continues teaching along the way. He sends out the 70, and this time the 70 are told there's no restriction. They weren't restricted in going only to the Jews. They can go beyond that in Galilee. And they continue to heal and to teach and to preach the kingdom of God. And in these 11 chapters, there's several parables, most of them, and several teachings about the kingdom. In those 11 chapters, there are at least 13 teachings about the kingdom of God. And it closes with a parable of the talents before the triumphal entry. And just before that, as he has seen Zacchaeus, and he commends Zacchaeus for his conversion, and he talks about Zacchaeus' house coming to salvation... This is a key text in the shepherd line of the scarlet thread. Luke 19, 9 through 10. Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to do what? To seek and to save the lost. 
So what's happened in the middle of those passages and those teachings is Jesus has described what it means to seek and to save the lost. So I'm going to read the whole passage and then make a few comments on it. Luke 15, all the way down to uh, verse number 24. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, that is, in the wilderness, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. You see, in the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he, that is the father, divided his wealth between them, the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country and there squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was what? Was dead is what it means. Not just lost, it actually means was perishing and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And we're not going to talk about the epilogue. We're not going to talk about the other son right now tonight. I think in this, obviously, we see some main points. God does what? He cares. He cares urgently. He cares urgently for the lost. You know, Henry Baker wrote a hymn that was scored by Raphon Williams. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. 
I nothing lack if I am his and he is mine forever. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. You see, he urgently cares for the lost. Pressing concern, you know, the word lost here, used throughout this passage, means more than just being misplaced. It's not like misplacing a ring that you hunt under the dresser for in years to come. No, it literally means to be perishing. It means to be dying, to be in dangerous threat of death, near to the point thereof. After all, the, fa- the father says, this brother of yours was dead, and now he has begun to live. And, and Jesus warns us about this lostness that ends in death. He comes at the very beginning of his ministry, and he preaches this. He preaches this through these 11 chapters of Luke as he preaches the kingdom. The basic message remained the same from beginning to end. What was it? The time is fulfilled. You see, the time is upon us. The time is imminent. The time is urgent. The time is now. The kingdom of God, what, is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is an urgent appeal then when he says, believe. That is, repent and believe the gospel. There's a sense of urgency about the shepherd as he preaches the kingdom news. And the consequences are ultimate. The consequences are eternal. A group of people came to him in Luke, the 13th chapter, and they asked him about the Galileans whose blood had been mingled at the altar by Herod. In other words, they, uh, by Pilate. They had been murdered. And they're in consternation about this. And what, how does Jesus respond to them? He doesn't deal with that issue. He doesn't deal with the politics. He doesn't deal with all of those other issues about which they're concerned. He says, I tell you this. I tell you the truth. Verily I say unto you, unless you repent you will also likewise perish. You see, there is a sense of urgency by God for the lost. There's a second thing that we see here. God never does what? He never gives up. He persistently seeks the lost. Look at the shepherd. The shepherd's got the hundred, and then all of a sudden one is gone, and he is aware of it. You see, he keeps his eyes not only on the sparrow, but he keeps his eyes on every sheep. And one is missing. And when one goes missing, he knows it. And then what does he do? He risks it all. He leaves the 99 in the open pasture. And he risks it all. And he goes into the danger of the wilderness to do what? To seek that one that is lost. You know, Isaac Watts put it this way. My shepherd will supply my need, Jehovah is his name, and pastures fresh, he makes me feed beside the living stream. Sounds like the beginning of the 23rd Psalm, and it's meant to. And then he says this, he brings my wandering spirit back when I forsake his ways and leads me for his mercy's sake in paths of truth and grace. You see, he seeks the lost, like the diligent widow. What did she do? She meticulously, I can picture her, it's near midnight, it's dark, and she meticulously sweeps into every corner, probably a one-room house, but if there's more than one in every room, she does not delay until the morning, until the morning light is. She spends the money or she spends the resources of lighting that expensive lamp of oil, 
Diligent into the night, she burns the midnight oil until she finally finds the coin. There's a diligent search. There is an urgent search. Think of the loving father. Well, we don't know much about what he did while his son was gone. The story is all about the son, but we do know this. The moment that the son's head pops over the horizon down that dusty road, the father sees him. So what's the father been doing? We know what the father's been doing. Read in between the lines. The father's been praying. The father's been waiting. The father's been keeping the home fires burning, just hoping that his son will return. And when he sees his son, he receives him with compassion and love and forgiveness. He receives him with grace and love and no accusations. I told you so, son. No recrimination, just love. What this tells us is that there's nobody, there's nothing, there's none of God's sheep that is beyond his reach. I know that there are people that we think of sometimes that we know in our life that we think are lost causes. Hmm. Well, folks, they're not a lost cause as long as we're praying for them. Like the father was praying for the, the son. You know, we sang that song about the goodness of God doing what? Jonathan, the goodness of God doing what? Running after me. The goodness of God running after me, pursuing me. You may not know the poem, 1891. It's 130 years old by Francis Thompson. And you don't find the phrase in the, in the, in the, the poem, but it's very descriptive. The hound of what? Heaven, pursuing relentlessly. This sounds oxymoronic. I know God is merciful, but mercilessly pursuing. No, in fact, what? Mercifully pursuing the lost. So he cares with an urgency, and he never gives up, and it leads to the joy of recovery. The shepherd and the widow both do the same thing. They want to share their joy. They invite their friends and their neighbors to come in, and the word that is used there, come in and congratulate me. (laughs) Take part together with me in my joy. And the result of that, of course, the parallel is there is great what? Congratulation in heaven. There are high fives amongst the angels when one sinner repents. Can you picture that? Raising their hands in praise, but high-fiving each other because that one sinner in Africa or that one sinner in South America or that one sinner in New York or that one sinner in Fort Worth just repented and came to the Lord. At the prodigal's homecoming, it's a little different. He brings the whole household together in a feast, and they have a double celebration. The words that are used there in verse number 32 is that they are gladdened, they celebrate, they're merry, and they rejoice. Charles Wesley reminds us that we need to celebrate salvation. Not only our own, but whenever we know of someone who has accepted Christ, has accepted the Lord, we need to celebrate it. Love divine, all loves what? Excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling and thy faithful mercies crown. Here it is. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Great joy. And last point before I summarize. 
You know, every single one is important. How many people are on the face of this globe today? Eight billion. The other day we said about two billion of them are between the age of zero and 14. Folks, they are prime for the gospel. They all are, but especially the young generation coming up. Eight billion people, those numbers are astronomical. He knows every hair on your head. He's got it numbered. Everyone counts. One lost sheep among the 99, that one counted enough to leave the others in open pasture. One lost coin is valuable enough for her to put aside the other nine, make sure they're safe, diligently to search for the one lost coin. And the one prodigal son has how much value? He has as much value as the obedient son, who, oh, by the way, that's another story, and we know that, of equal value. So let me apply this with about three or four very quick things. Number one, we need to give thanks. Each one of us, like sheep have gone astray. And yet we have a shepherd who is our great overseer. Peter says it this way, For you continuously were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, that is the guardian. You know what the word guardian means there? Your overseer, the bishop of your souls. We need to give thanks that though we have strayed, we, had a, we have a shepherd that cared enough to do what? To seek and to save the lost and to oversee our souls. We need to rejoice as God's flock. Why? Well, because we've been given the kingdom. And, and it's put in, in sheep terms, in shepherd terms. In Luke, the 12th chapter, after he talks, this is the context where I was talking about this morning, where Jesus is preaching part of the Sermon on the Mount in a different context. And he talks about they're not worrying about what they eat, what they drink, what they what? What they wear. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, and these things will be added to you. And then he says this, don't be afraid, little flock, sheep. Don't be afraid. I'm your shepherd. Don't be afraid, little flock, for the, your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We need to be rejoicing because we're part of kingdom shepherds, just like Israel. And he brings us into the kingdom. We need to rejoice because he also makes us part of his redemptive plan. We've been talking about this scarlet thread all along. And what he does, he not only brings us in the flock to be nurtured and to be taken care of, but he gives us a responsibility then also to participate in kingdom business as his sheep. Hebrews says this, Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead by the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you and every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So He brings us into the redemptive plan. We need to rejoice. Thirdly, we need to respond. We need to respond to the shepherd's call. He seeks and what? Saves the lost, and He commands us to do the same thing. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, He says what? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all of creation. He who has believed and is baptized will be saved, and he who has disbelieved will be condemned. There is an urgency to which he calls us to share this message. Rescue the perishing. Care for the what? Dying. Snatch them in pity. 
from sin and the grave. Weep over the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing, friends. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will what? He will save. Two more points. God appoints us. He appoints shepherds. He is a great shepherd and he appoints shepherds. In Jeremiah, he says that I will give you shepherds after my own heart and they will feed you knowledge and understanding. I will raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer or terrified, nor will any be missing. He calls you into the flock to be under shepherds, to go out and to seek and to save the lost. And he he appoints some to be under shepherds, to take care of the flock and to do so without compulsion and without exercising authority over them in an inappropriate way. So he calls us to be shepherds. And then finally, he expects us to respond to the shepherd's call. We need to be accountable. The shepherd did what? He went after. Think of that phrase. He goes after the sheep. We're accountable to the good shepherd to do that. To seek, not just to save, but to seek and to save the lost, to go after other sheep. Now, what that means, folks, is the rest of the, the, the fold is not unprotected, okay? Fortunately. While some of us are out seeking and saving the, the lost, there are others that are taking care of the sheep. We have those two responsibilities. He calls us to be responsible, like the widow, to search carefully and diligently that which is lost. It's hard work. This work about seeking the lost requires diligence. It requires burning the midnight oil like the widow. We need to light the lamp. And I don't think that this is an inappropriate, I think, parallel. Light the lamp, not only the oil lamp in the house looking for the coin, but Jesus says, you've got a light. We live in a dark and dying world. And Jesus says what to us? You are the light of the world Let your light so shine so that people will see your work and they will do what? They will glorify your Father in heaven. We need to light the lamp so that the lost can be identified and they can be reached. And then finally, we need to have a heart for the lost like the Father. We need to show grace and patience like the Father did. You know, I know that we all have friends and sometimes family that are lost. And some of you have been praying for them for years like the father did for the son. We don't know how long he was in the far country. And you may have somebody like that that you've been praying for. Don't give up. The father never gave up. Wait expectantly for God to do his work in the heart. We have to be careful that we don't harass people with the gospel. Jesus never compelled anybody. He never harassed them. He never twisted their spiritual arm. He shared the good news. And he let the Spirit of God work in their heart. And then he paid the price. We don't need to harass people. We need to gently share the gospel in a kind and gentle way and pray for them. And then when God works a work in their heart, just like he did in the prodigal son's heart, out in the middle of the, the, the swine, we need to welcome the prodigal back as the father welcomed him with no recrimination, No sense of superiority or privilege. I've been a Christian so many years and you're a new Christian. You know what I mean? They're equally brothers and sisters in the kingdom. 
We embrace them as lost members of God's family, the other sheep that the shepherd was seeking to bring in. And with undiluted joy, we welcome them into the koinonia of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to do those things. We need to go after the lost sheep. Here at Gambrel Street, we need to pray more diligently and we need to work more diligently. We need to pray more consistently and work more diligently at reaching lost sheep so that we might have the joy of seeing them come into the kingdom.